This is Macro Voices, the free weekly financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Macro Voices is all about the brightest minds in the world of finance and macroeconomics telling it like it is, bullish or bearish, no holds barred. Now, here are your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna. Macro Voices episode 364 was produced on February 23rd, 2023. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by Respect Energy, a leading European trader of renewable energy and a one-stop shop for all green energy investors. MI2 founder Julian Brigden returns as this week's feature interview guest. Julian and I will discuss inflation, treasury yields, Fed policy, bond market outlook, stocks, precious metals, and more. There's been a significant escalation in geopolitical tension in the last few days, with Russia announcing it will step away from the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty and rearm its submarines and warships with nuclear warheads for the first time in three decades. So former U.S. presidential advisor Dr. Pippa Malmgren will join us for a short post-game interview after the feature interview with Julian Brigden and give us a quick update on the rapidly escalating geopolitical situation. And I'm Patrick Serezna. Listeners, be sure to stay tuned for our post-game segment after Eric's feature interview with Julian when Eric, Nick, and I dive into the chart deck looking at the S&P 500, NASDAQ, VIX, gold, oil, and more. Now, Eric, before we move on to the feature interview with Julian, let's cover crude oil. EIA inventory was delayed by the holiday this week, so we don't have it at time of recording. It will have been published by the time you hear this, so be sure to check there. But API reported another big build, almost 10 million barrels, and uh, also product builds across the board uh, was reported by API on Wednesday afternoon. Of course, API is the private inventory service. EIA is the government service, which uh, reported a day late this week, so we don't have the numbers for this week's show. Uh, I, for one, did not see this big series of builds coming. Uh, They've been ignored by the market, at least until now. Sentiment seems to be shifting now from China reopening, which I think was what was holding up the market, to economic slowdown in the USA. And it appears that this string of inventory builds over the last eight weeks has finally caught up with the market. The numbers to watch on the downside are the 200-month moving average at 73, spot 63, then the uh, cycle low that we had back in December at 70, spot 08, and if this really gets going to the downside, the 200-week moving average at 65, spot 99, call it $66, uh, are the technical levels to watch on the downside. We do have this geopolitical escalation, which just in the last few hours before we recorded this week's show, Uh, took another step of escalation, uh, and we'll have an update on that from Dr. Pippa Baumgren. But I'm shocked that the geopolitical risk doesn't seem to be holding the market up or or causing the market to move much higher. So it seemed like what the tape was telling us, at least through Wednesday afternoon, was that this uh, oil market is headed lower, despite uh, all the many reasons that I've described, thinking that it ought to move higher eventually. It seems like weakening economic expectations were set to carry it lower. Will that reverse because of the geopolitical escalation that's happened with Russia stepping away from the strategic arms reduction talks treaty? Uh, Will this take us back up or are we still going to see another leg down? Uh, It's anybody's guess. 
This week's feature interview guest is MI2 founder Julian Brigden. Eric, why did we invite Julian back as a guest this week? Well, Patrick, Julian is a listener favorite. He's got a really strong macro track record, and he's always had very uh, interesting views on the bond market. I wanted to get an update on his structural outlook for the bond market now because this is the moment where most people are saying, okay, the, the Fed has either reached their terminal rate or they're almost reaching their terminal rate or they're close to reaching whatever. You know, Bond yields have come up. They, they've gone up as far as they're going to go. Now they're going to go back down. Well, are they really going to go back down? I want to see what Julian thinks because I'm skeptical. Eric's interview with Julian Brigden is coming up as Macro Voices continues right after this message from our sponsor. If you invest to bring about a world powered by green energy, you should meet Respect Energy, a leading European trader of renewable energy that serves as a one-stop shop for green energy investors in Europe. Respect Energy brings together independent power producers, accredited and institutional investors holding assets in renewables, or undertaking investments in new green energy production, such as wind and solar photovoltaic power plants. More than 600 institutional and accredited investors have already entrusted Respect Energy with the sale of their electricity production, portfolio management, O&M services, EPC, and project development. If you want to invest in green energy in Europe with the help of a trusted partner, contact Respect Energy today and ask for a tailor-made solution. For more information, visit respect.energy. And now, with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Joining me now is MI2 founder Julian Brigden. Julian, it's great to have you back on the show. I want to start with inflation. A lot of people are saying that it's topped. Okay. My question is, well, we all know that inflation was driven at least partly by pandemic effects. That's probably why we got so high. But even if it's topped... Does that mean we're going back to 2% or does that mean that we're really in a new regime that is going to be more inflationary? So, I mean, structurally, Eric, we don't know that for definite, right? But if I, if you ask me the likely path of the dots over the next decade and is that, are they structurally inflationary? My answer would be probably yes. Now, I mean, my analogy has always been the sort of late 60s into the 1970s to some degree. And even then in that period, we saw four big waves of inflation. The point is that we never rang, we never were truly successful in ringing out the inflation. And so each sort of low was slightly higher after that initial burst. And that's kind of the world I think we're living in. Uh, right here, right now, that would almost certainly suggest that we are and this has certainly been our view and since late summer of last year, that inflation has topped at least for now and is coming down. I think there is a couple of things that the bulls don't quite understand about the relationship between inflation and nominal GDP and how just even if we were to wake up tomorrow morning and uh, inflation were to be zero, the Fed would still be raising rates. Because I think, you know, the equity boys tend to be myopically focused on that 
inflation component of nominal GDP and don't look at nominal GDP in aggregate. That's very important. So I do, bottom line, I think it's coming down, uh, certainly headline. I can see quite a lot of stickiness in core and services, and that means the labor market has to be addressed. And that's a different question, Eric. Julian, in describing the Fed's strategy, which drives all of this, you've used the phrase opportunistic disinflation. What's that about? So I think, you know, uh, I used to work at Medley Global Advisors, which was the sort of premier policy think tank in its day. And, you know, we'd go off and see, you know, Alan Greenspan in those days, not my Issing and all those sorts of guys um, from the various central banks and then charge you $250,000 a year just to talk to us. And people were beating our doors down because we were incredibly good at what we did. I still interact with a lot of my policy friends who are in that sort of space and, and do this for a living. And one of the things that we'd be discussing is the nature of the policy approach that you adopt as a central bank when you have very high inflation, right? What do you do? Well, there's really only two options. And they are deliberate disinflation, which is what Volcker did. Um, In other words, you can deliberately push the economy into disinflation. You can, if you want an analogy, you take the patient out to the swimming pool, Eric, or the economy out to the swimming pool, sorry, and then you stick its head under the water till it drowns, right? Literally drowns. You force this economy into a deep, deep recession and you wring out inflation. Clearly not a great option. Option number two is what is referred to as opportunistic disinflation. And this is really what Greenspan did in the mid-90s. And in that scenario, it's not painless, right? So if you want to go back to the analogy game, you take the economy out to the pool and you hold your head, your hand over its head so that it's barely able to breathe. It's spluttering at best. It's a pretty unpleasant place to be. Now, that's clearly better than drowning the patient, although it doesn't preclude the patient drowning because the patient may just run out of puff and dry, drown under their own weight, in which case, tough, okay? And in, in which case, you embrace that as a central bank banker as an opportunity, right? hence the expression opportunistic, to lower inflation. Um, But what you're really hoping for is what Greenspan saw in the mid-90s, and that's a burst of huge productivity advancements. If you remember in the mid-90s, we're heading into the dot-com bubble. It was some of the most rapid advancements in productivity we've seen in our careers, Eric, and that that helps to lower inflation. But the point is, it isn't a painless place. And the second thing, and this is what the markets don't understand, if you pursue a policy of opportunistic versus deliberate disinflation, While you may not push rates up as high and as painful, the whole process takes much, much longer, Eric. We are talking about years of high restrictive, not killing, but restrictive rates. Not months, not, you know, even quarters, years. Under Alan Greenspan, rates essentially... remained, you know, within a 75 basis point range for four and a half years to bring headline CPI down 2%. 
And so this whole concept that the market's been laboring under, that you just march rates up and then you march them immediately down again, was delusional. The only way that was possible ever was if you pursued deliberate disinflation. And in that case, you'd be lucky if the S&P would be above 2,500, let alone 4,000. So this is what the market does not understand. They really, really do not understand. And they've priced in a scenario both in the bond market, it's increasingly getting priced out a little bit, um, but certainly in the equity market where somehow miraculously we get a sort of miracle collapse in inflation, right? That it somehow goes back. I mean, the bond market's basically, basically pricing in a 400 basis point collapse in inflation in the next two years. Well, even in recessions, we've never even come close to that in the post-war period. They're low outside a recession, you know, in a no landing, which the equity market wants to see, right? Delusional. Julian, a lot of people seem to be saying, okay, look, the Fed is either at their terminal rate or they're really close to it. Okay, I can believe that part. And then in the very next breath, they say, so therefore, we should expect the policy reversal to occur very soon, where we'll begin cutting. Wait a minute. Does that leap uh, of logic actually make sense? No, I mean, it, it can't, Eric, right? I mean, this is, this is why both the bond market, in a way, but certainly the equity market has been delusional. So the bond market has priced in a scenario where, to your point, you march rates up and then you immediately march them back down again. But the only way that that made sense is if you delivered a swinging recession. And yet, that's certainly not what the equity market is priced. So these markets have been utterly incompatible, right? I mean, this, this latest narrative we've had about no landing, I mean, I don't know who's been talking about that, but that's crack speak, right? There is no option for a no landing, right? We have to have a landing and it's either going to be a hard landing or it's going to be a soft landing, right? Now, can you pull off a soft landing? Maybe, but the soft landing takes a long time. Eric, this is the point, right? You'll be sitting here. If unemployment doesn't materially rise, right, you're going to be sitting here for a long, long time trying to grind out inflation. And we're not talking months. We're talking years. Greenspan was only dealing with 4.5% odd CPI, and it took him Two years to grind that out. It, I mean, it, it's, you know, and my concern is if the equity market doesn't go, right, given what I've talked about to my clients about hyper-financialization, in other words, the correlation between equities and the real economy, whereby, you know, you logic would kind of dictate, I guess, that if you thought of it from a chicken and an egg perspective, that the chicken was the real economy, right? It sets profits, it sets wages, it sets you know, employment, et cetera, et cetera. And that should drive stocks. Not in the US. Not in the US. Financial markets drive the real economy through hyper-financialization, through the behavior of CEOs, because CEOs are paid only to do one thing, and that is to constantly inflate the value of their equity price. So the minute that their equity price goes down, they start to cut jobs, and that's what we can see in the tech sector. But the point is, is if for some reason, the equity market actually rallies over the summer and into the second half of the year, then what weakness we're seeing now, Eric, won't even occur. It'll be transitory. 
And then inflation will be back up and wages will be back up because jobs are back up in the second half of the year. So this concept that the bond market's been pricing, that this thing goes up and down, and this concept that the equity market that, you know, oh, because it goes up and down, we never have to go down, utterly incompatible. Let's talk about how this translates to an outlook for the bond market, because one of the views that I've heard, including from some very smart people, is, look, this is the buy-the-dip opportunity in the bond market. And the reason is the Fed is either at or near its terminal rate. And yeah, it might take a while before they reverse. It might not be a straight up and down. But the thing is, as long as rates don't go substantially up from here, hey, if you go long bonds, you're making a coupon for holding those bonds. It's a positive carry trade. And eventually, you know, those interest rates are coming back down and there's going to be principal appreciation as a result. What's wrong with that? And that's not my view, just to be super clear. Uh, But what's wrong with that, I think, fallacy? So, so look, I, I mean, I don't disagree. And we bought bonds back in November of last year and we got out. Uh, we did a great run and we got out of them, you know, a couple of months back. And that was our first bond buy that we'd had for two and a half years, Eric, because you know that we were mega inflation bulls back in late 2020, early 2021. So here's a couple of the problems that I've got with that. Look, I think growth is slowing. So at some point, I think you want to, you do want to get back in. I think what we're pricing now, this bond weakness, is a repricing of that higher for longer. And as it's rippled down the curve, you know, we started off with the front end with the SOFA contracts and the ED contracts and kind of two years, and it's been led by two years, right? Of these, as they've had to price out this assumed, you know, rates go up and then they immediately start to get cut scenario. And that's now rippling down into sort of five years that looks to be breaking out, 10 years looks at breaking out, right? So I can see everything kind of revisiting its high. But I do think the economy is slowing. So I do, so I'm inclined to want to buy. What are my structural reservations? Apart from a tactical trade, right? What are my structural reservations to want to be long the bond market? Well, there's a few. The first one is fungibility. And by that, I mean the impact of other sovereign bond yields on US treasuries, because we tend to forget that the only reason why our bond yields dropped as low as they did, in part, was because of the actions of people like the ECB and the BOJ. Both of those central banks are actually reversing their policies at present. So, you know, I'm very worried that if we do not get this collapse in activity in Europe, which at least initially looked to be on the cards, then bond yields look 100 basis points out of whack to me. And if you put 100 basis points on bonds, you're going to put another 75 on treasuries. So fungibility is, tactical considerations aside, a major concern. Same obviously true the BOJ. We don't think they're moving rapidly to end uh, under UEDA to end YCC and their, uh, their pegged rates. But we do believe they will gradually move that way. And that will have an enormous implication for global fixed income. So fungibility is one issue. Second issue is technically, Eric, we've done inordinate damage to these bond markets. There isn't a single part of the curve from twos to thirties that hasn't blown through some version of a 40-year trend line in technically. So you could get retracements 
on those lines to say in 10 years, that would get you back down to about three, maybe upper twos, depending on how you draw the line. But technically, until we get down below that line, I think it's hard to infer that we are in a bull market again. And thirdly, and this is the one that you know we started to talk about, if I connect the dots as to where I think or fear this is going to go, I believe that between Trump spending and then COVID-related spending and now defense-related spending, not just in the US, but Europe and Japan, that fiscal rectitude has been, and you and I have talked about this in the past, has been taken out to the woodshed and shot through the forehead. In the, the budget numbers of various countries are now getting increasingly out of hand. And we saw you know, nascent signs of that in the UK with the guilt crisis. I'm not sure that the long end of the bond market, if we were to move into a recession, which is greeted by, let's say, more fiscal spending from from politicians eager to get re-elected in 2024, that the bond market would take it at all well. Is it time to start worrying again about divestiture of U.S. assets by foreign central banks and the general uh, theme of the possibility that the U.S. dollar is beginning to lose its reserve currency status? That's a, a view that I'll admit that I had more than 10 years ago, and it turned out to be way too early. Is it finally time <laughs> that that's uh, to be? And I don't think it was wrong. I just think it was way too early. Is it still too early? Yeah, I, on balance. Eric, I would say, yes, I think it's probably early, but it, it it doesn't mean that you couldn't get quite a weak dollar, right? I mean, I think what people don't understand is the nature of how the global funding pipelines are all connected, right? I mean, we've had an extraordinary period of the last, well, really, especially since 2014, but even starting in 2011, where we've had this Booming U.S. economy, ballooning budget def- uh, current account deficit and budget deficit, uh, which has been funded by foreigners. And that's fine um, as long as they keep funding and as long as that budget deficit needs funding and that current account deficit needs funding. But it is it by its very nature an unstable, stable equilibrium, Eric, Right. So if one day we woke up and the US economy was in deep recession and we the current account deficit as a result had collapsed because Americans are not importing as much as they did before, then we wouldn't need foreigners' money. And that money would go home and the dollar would weaken against the countries that have lent us that money because on definition, they've done it on an unhedged basis. The only way they can fund the current account deficit. The other option is we could wake up one day and we could find out that the US equity market really is a bubble, was a bubble. And all the the vast outperformance of the US tech sector, which is really in dollar terms, the only sector that has performed in the last you know decade plus since the lows of 09. We could find that it was a bubble and that bubble bursts. And as that bubble bursts, the US economy goes into recession and the money that we need to fund the deficits goes home. And likewise, we could wake up one day and the dollar could drop and the returns of foreigners in US dollars, if they look at their NASDAQ holdings unhedged, could start to deteriorate and they could take their money home. 
So there is, even before we get into the thorny topic of is the dollar going to be replaced as a reserve currency, and I, I've got quite a lot of sympathy with that and quite a lot of concern about it. I don't think it's prescient in the next six to nine months, but, you know, three years, four years, we'll have a different conversation. But it doesn't take that to cause an unwind of this, what has been a reflexively positive cycle on the upside, Eric, with US economic strength, rising current account deficit, rising US asset prices, foreign inflows into the dollar and US assets unhedged to unwind. Let's come back to the recession outlook. Uh, we've had quite a few guests recently tell us various different rationales that all lead to the same conclusion, which is recession still coming, uh, bear market and stocks not over yet, but probably not till the second half of the year. How does that fit into your outlook? So, look, it's always tough uh, to know exactly when this thing starts, but you know, I like to use the PMIs, and I tend to listen a lot to what the chairman of ISM Manufacturing says, and he said... You know, May, June is when he thinks we'll probably go into recession. I mean, certainly the PMI internal metrics are starting to suggest that. So I'm more in the maybe in the second quarter, but probably in the third quarter. I certainly look at my credit-related models, Eric, and they look pretty friggin' ugly. And what they suggest in terms of defaults as we move into the second half of the year, what they suggest in terms of employment, what they suggest in terms of GDP, all are recessionary at this point. Julian, let's translate that to the stock market outlook then, because usually we expect that it's around the time the recession is starting that the stock market may already be bottoming. If anything, I mean, it looks like the bottom's behind us. I don't think it is. I think we've got another wave down coming. But what's your outlook? So I'm struggling with this one, Eric. Look, I, I got short the S&P. You know, I, I kind of use very simple moving metric, uh, moving averages to keep me kind of honest. Because, look, I'm a macro guy. There's nothing better than I would like to see the equity boys burn in hell. Um, it's my natural inclination. It's great for the bond market. So I got short in sort of end of uh, 2021. It got confirmed by my moving averages in May. Recently, I got a signal which would suggest that the bottom's in place. Now, like you, I'd always assumed that we were going materially lower. So kind of 3,000 was my base case. And it's possible, it's possible, but it would be pretty unusual since because since the 1960s, every time I've got the signal that I got, 95% of the time, it suggests the bottom's already in place. So I'm going to have to think quite hard if we get the S&P, you know, down to, let's say, 38, right? 37. That I've always assumed that we were going to 32, maybe. May not get that. Let's talk about how the war cycle fits into all of this. The U.S. has already spent more than $100 billion, with a B, uh, in supporting the war in Ukraine. Uh, that's more than the entire budget of the Russian uh, military. 
What does this mean? I, I don't think it's over now in Ukraine, and I don't think it ends with Ukraine. I, I think that uh, it looks very likely to me that a conflict between the U.S. and China, either proxy through Taiwan or direct conflict with China, may be coming as well. If I'm right that there's going to be a, a new cycle of more war spending, what does that mean for the markets? So I would concur it's not over. You know, I I wrote a, a year or so ago, a couple of years ago, that and looked at these papers that the Bank of England had done, looking at seven hundred years of bond markets and how you get cycles. You end up with these what they call real rate depressions. So these extended periods of very very low uh, interest rates. And they went back and looked at various periods, and this would be the ninth that we've just lived through. And what systematically ended those periods of very low rates, real rates, and bond bull markets were um, a war and or pandemic. And, you know, we tend to be arrogant and think it's always different, but it bloody isn't different, Eric, right? I mean, we think that there's been, you know, we're so technologically savvy that productivity advancement is so much higher now than it was in the past. Really? Do you not think the wheel, you know, fire, the spinning jenny, clipper ships, the internal combustion engine, the aeroplane. Do you think they had created huge technological advancements as opposed to salesforce.com and cloud computing? Right? You know, all of these factors come through time and time and time again. And the war one intrigued me because to me, to your point, we're fighting a kinetic war with Russia. It ain't going to be cheap. And it's not only the US, right? This is this is Europe that's having to pony up a lot. Secondly, we're fighting an accelerative, let's hope it only remains a cold war with China. And we're fighting a climate change war. All of those factors demand vast quantities of money to be redirected away from the private sector towards the public sector. That is not bullish for fixed income, to structurally bearish for fixed income. What does it mean for equities? I mean, it probably should mean that duration assets, which have just bounced yet again, right? Almost, you know, I, I find it, you know, incredible how far, you know, things like the NASDAQ have bounced back and some of these names should trade pretty poorly. And, and generally speaking, while the equity market will do better in that, Higher inflation, higher bond yield kind of environment. The bond and the bond yield, per, the bond market per se, it's not great for markets. This is a, this is a, you know, we've been writing this now for four years. That this end of this, you know, suddenly people have woken up to oh shit, this relationship with, you know, between China and the US is breaking down. It was obvious four or five years ago. You know, I can point to pieces we wrote in 20, 2018 and twenty nineteen where this relationship was deteriorating rapidly, well ahead of. You know, people getting concerned, should they have, you know, China being uninvestable, right? And all of a sudden, China's investable again. God forbid, God forbid that it is upcoming meeting between the Russians and the Chinese. The Chinese openly come out and support Russia. What's that going to do to the U.S. corporate sector? Are they going to really be able to treat Russia differently from China or China differently from Russia? I mean, if McDonald's put mulled out of Russia, 
and suddenly the Chinese are, are backing the Russians with lethal aid, shouldn't they be pulling out of China too? And the same for Nike and the same for Tesla and the same for Apple in the face of what's going to be huge public and political outcry in this country if that happens. I mean, that's not even remotely priced. And I'm not saying that's where the Chinese are going to want to go, but it's sure as shit a risk. So war is, is manifests itself in very, very different ways, Eric, and none of them are great for any market as far as I can figure out. Now, if I assimilate several of the things that you've said in this interview, which is that uh, there's going to be a whole lot more money that's going to be needed to support the the war cycle that, that I think we both agree has begun. Uh, and we talk about what's going on in the bond market. And although you don't think it's immediate, you are projecting in the next several years that there is a risk of U.S. dollar uh, hegemony over the global financial system, at least diminishing, if yes. not an actual loss of, of reserve currency status, at least a, a reduced Correct. presence. Correct. Yes. You would think all of those things would lead to a structural rally in precious metals. And we sort of had one going, but boy, it just reversed pretty darn hard. Is this just a, a hiccup here? What should we make of the, the gold and, and other precious metals charts? So I, I, think, um, I think really what you're dealing with is still a very robust Fed. Right. That's the fundamental problem that you've got right here, right now. Right. The Fed is not stepping off the gas as a result. And if you look at when precious metals did exceptionally well, I mean, gold's traded very well for a while. Right. But we know it's got very strong hands bid underneath it. It did well until the Fed started to get more hawkish and the data started to come through. Right. I mean, it's still both both of those at the end of the day, especially silver, are really heavily correlated both to nominal yields which have been rising and to the dollar that's part of your problem julian let's move to europe uh, mm. i think that the situation in their energy market is maybe at least going to feel some relief for a short while uh, i'm not sure about longer term it seems like the impending dire crisis is at least on hold and of course we're about to get warmer weather in the next few months so that should ease things as well is the worst behind us for europe or if we just only seen a, a taste of what's to come so I think the catastrophic, you know, go to jail, do not pass, go, do not collect $200 scenario is, is probably off the table. But the community service card is still kind of there, Eric. And, and the reason that I say that is when I look at Europe, there are a couple of things that still materially worry me. The first one that worries me is that while we're seeing some business sentiment rebound quite sharply, and, and particularly some of my forward indicators in German industry as energy prices have come down, have rebounded very robustly. What I'm not seeing much of is a bounce in the consumer. Consumer confidence still seems to be nailed to the floor. And this looks really very problematic for me because we've seen instances, most notably in 2012 around the sovereign crisis where consumer confidence is gone. 
The business sector has gone, hey, it's all right. Everything's fine, right? And then all of a sudden, they've looked down and gone, Jesus, look where the consumer is. And then they followed in short succession. So that still remains a, a real risk to me. The second issue that I've got is we're starting to see quite a material tightening of credit in Europe. And as a result, that also suggests quite a material slowdown in growth. And I, and I will add at this point that I'm quite suspicious that on both sides of the pond, some of the strength in data that we're seeing with here in the US and in Europe is really a function of very, very warm weather that we've seen relative to seasonals. And in fact, some of the PMIs were particularly commenting on the danger of seasonal adjustments at this time of the year, perhaps betraying excessive strength, particularly in the, in the service sector where, you know, people have kept going out to restaurants, right? And doing that sort of stuff. I mean, a colleague of mine is in Innsbruck, which is basically a ski town or right next to a ski town in Austria. And they were eating outside last week. Well, in bloody February, you should be buried up to your neck in snow. But it's just not happening. So I'm still cautious about this. It's, you know, everything's rebounded. We're out of, we've got, we get out of jail free card. I'm still concerned that there are risks in in Europe. And I'm also concerned, I'll be honest with you, that I worry if this is just building in a greater policy error by the ECB, right, that they could end up being more hawky as the Fed is, is being more hawky, even though the data is actually underneath underneath the surface moving quite negatively and quite quickly. And that's certainly the case, for example, here in the US, when I look at some of my forward indicators, uh, which is why I said to you, I, I'm still that we're going to be in that recessionary camp here in the US. The idea that the US goes into recession and Europe somehow avoids it completely, I'm highly skeptical of that. Julian, let's talk about the return of volatility to markets. One thing that I'm definitely noticing is that there are so many conflicting views that we are seeing a lot more up and down chop in the markets. Something that was a popular topic a couple of years ago that seems to have kind of fallen off the radar screen for a lot of people is the question of whether at some point this passive investing trend is going to blow up where eventually people figure out that if everybody's you know all in index funds and you get a big market move and everybody starts to panic uh, it could really spell a, a bad situation for the markets what do you think about the passive investing trend and the reemergence of volatility in markets so Short term, Eric, I'm definitely in the in the view that, I mean, and we can already see it, right? We've been in a more volatile, while it may not be reflected by things like the VIX, you know, we've seen a more volatile trading environment and realized vol has steadily risen, right? As the Fed has shrunk the balance sheet. And that's not uh, unusual. I mean, if you look at one year S&P realized vol, it's gone from 12 to 24, you know, since they basically started QT. So short term, definitely, uh, you know, we're in that kind of camp. The bigger picture, I think, gets rather interesting. And I've postulated this question to clients and and, you know, are we coming to the end of what I would call the great moderation? So this sort of heightened period of 
uh, or this extended period since the mid 80s of, of significantly lower economic and as a result, central bank and as a result, market volatility. And I think there's a decent chance we are, Eric, right? And we're not there yet. And I think we need a couple of other things to slot into place. But I can see kind of the writing on the wall. And one of the things that would get us there, and while I'm still sort of formulating formulating this view, one of the things that would definitively get us there would be return to what used used to be referred to, and you'll remember this because you're old enough like me, is stop-go economics, right? And stop-go policy and, as a result, boom-bust economics, right? That you go from this period where, if you think about the nice kind of reactive policy environment which we've been in where inflation has been benign and controlled and the economic cycles have been nice and predictable and kind of, you know, that's the predictable kind of sine wave, right? And policymakers can kind of run interference at the top of the cycle where they come in and they dampen down animal spirits a bit and at the bottom of the cycle where they stoke them a little bit. But nothing gets out of whack, Right, where the amplitudes of the cycles are predictable, where they're contained. And yet, if you go back and you look at physics and you look at, you know, this is something I've looked at with some of my quants, right? You get these periods of what is referred to as accelerative oscillations, where typically, you know, if you, if you have a, say, an explosion or something that the, the wave emanates out from the, from the center of the explosion in a predictable kind of pattern. But if it's met by some other, opposing force, then it can either kill the the wave or it can actually increase the amplitude of the wave by hitting at the wrong point of the cycle. And I think there's a real danger that we're moving into that period. So I look at, you know, Trump, for example, I think at Trump's fiscal spending uh, was very, very poorly timed. And it really started the cycle of inflation um, starting in sort of 2016. Then the Fed reacted to that. They were, had to be more aggressive than they normally did. They were a little late to react. And as a result, they over-tightened and we pushed things down. And then, you know, that's why they had to reverse in 2019. Then comes COVID. And obviously that's really added to the amplitude because of the virtue of all the fiscal and monetary stimulus that we did. And they never thought they were going to get inflation. And now they're having to overly tighten well, the risk is, Eric, that actually what they're going to do is they're going to bust this economy, right? And we will get a very sharp downturn. Okay, that's still a risk that we get a very, very sharp downturn. And as a result, on the other end of it, they'll have to ease even more aggressively. And so you go from these nice, smooth, predictable, dictated sine wave cycles to these cycles that become increasingly erratic, which is what we actually saw in the 60s and the 70s, where the amplitudes of the rate hikes and cuts got ever larger, 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 and where central banks go from a nice benign vol dampening force to actually a force that exaggerates the cycle because they're, they become reactive, not proactive, and their reactions tend to be late, and overly aggressive on both sides of the equation, you know, and throwing the fiscal authorities and you've got even bigger problems. And I, I think that's a real, real risk, Eric. And 
If that is the case, sir, and some of my clients certainly believe this, we're going to see asset switching at an insanely rapid rate where you're going to want to go from owning no bonds to all bonds to no duration stocks to all duration stocks in rapid succession. And wealth can get eviscerated in that environment, particularly if it isn't actively managed. Are we headed toward a moment of reckoning where the industry wakes up and says, oh, wait a minute, the reason that we rationalized passive investing is because everybody was trying to do active investing. And if everybody's trying to do it at once, it can't possibly work. But now that everybody's doing passive investing, it actually makes more sense to switch back to active investing. Does that finally hit the consciousness of not not just us on macro voices, but you know the the the, the, the broader financial community? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Right? The bloody problem, mate, is there aren't many people who are very good at active investing, right? I mean, look at the difficulty that even the macro hedge funds have it got at retaining and keeping talent, right? It's just not there anymore. You know, where does the young kid come who's experienced high vol? Well, he didn't exist if he's entered the market post-09, really. I mean, with the exception of COVID, right? I mean, this is this is an old man's game and there aren't that many of us left. So yes is the answer, but it isn't going to be easy to find those people. Well, Julian, I can't thank you enough for a terrific interview. Before I let you go, please tell us a little bit more about what you do at MI2 Partners and how people can follow your work. So we've been around, I think, 12 years now, Eric. Gosh, time fly when you're having fun. Although tell me that on President's Day as I was working. So you can find us at on Twitter, at JulianMI2, if you just want to follow me there. If you're actually interested in our work, contact support at mi2partners.com. And, um, you know, you'll find me either with the institutional product uh, under the MI2 umbrella or uh, in the joint product I push out with Raul under the Macro Insiders uh, tab at Real Vision. Patrick Ceresna, Nick Galarnik, and I will be back as Macro Voices continues right here at macrovoices.com. Now, back to your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna. Eric, was great to have Julian back on the show. Before we move on to this week's post-game chart deck, there's been a significant escalation in geopolitical tensions in the Ukraine war. So former White House policy advisor, Dr. Pippa Malmgren, joins us now for a quick update on the situation. Pippa, thanks for giving us a cameo interview on short notice. Oh, thanks for having me back, Patrick. Pippa, I wanted to get you back on the show after reading something that you wrote on your Substack post on Wednesday about a significant escalation of nuclear risk as a result of the Ukraine-Russia war. We're actually speaking in the wee hours of the morning, Wednesday night into Thursday morning because of time zones. And just in the last hour, while Americans were sleeping, there's been another escalatory announcement. Give us the lowdown. What's going on? Well. I think it's important to note that Norwegian intelligence put out a report a few days ago, and then they, the senior members of this Norwegian intelligence service came out and did press conferences. And they basically said 
that there's a real risk that as the Russians lose more people in Ukraine, it may lower the threshold for nuclear escalation. And that's, of course, been an issue for a while, right? This concern that if they lose, they have no place to go but the nuclear threat. And so Norwegian intelligence issued a report and they said tactical nuclear weapons are a particularly serious threat specifically to Norway, which is not what people are thinking about. And they also said that there was a real risk of sabotage to Norway's oil and gas installations, which of course is important because Norway has basically come to replace Russia as the major supplier for Western Europe. And then on top of that, the Russians then said that they were pulling out of the strategic arms limitation talks and basically abandoning any commitment to mutual inspection of nuclear weapons. And then President Putin apparently in the last hour basically said that Russia's nuclear forces will reach 100%. Now, what does that mean? I'm not sure. But what he's saying is that they will continue boosting their nuclear triad at a level of readiness that basically forces the West to spend a ton of money doing monitoring. And I think this is the key point. It's not necessarily that this is about launching a weapon. This is about creating an environment where the West has to keep all of their spy planes that are sniffers, right? They sniff out nuclear submarines and nuclear weapons. They'll have to keep those airplanes in the air all the time. And there are reports of that, again, over the last week, that basically NATO, using the Dutch and the, and the British and the Italians, they're all having to monitor the border of NATO constantly, in case somebody tries something. And this is a very, very expensive situation to maintain. I would liken it to when Ronald Reagan announced Star Wars and basically that forced the Soviet Union to spend a ton of money they didn't have and it eventually bankrupted them. And it's a kind of reverse of that by getting more aggressive and abandoning all the frameworks for mutual inspections this will force the West to be on high alert constantly, continuously. And that is just a hugely expensive exercise. So that's the state of play. So it's not so much about somebody actually lobbing a nuclear weapon. It's about creating a very expensive environment to maintain and a high level of fear. Pippa, from the Russian side, Medvedev, who's the representative of the Russian government, said that as far as Russia is concerned, this is a response to Western aggression. It's NATO aggression, specifically the West supplying Ukraine with more and more weapons and now threatening to supply fighter jets, which would allow Ukraine much more capability to fight against Russia. And what Russia is saying is, hey, look, this whole thing is reversible. This policy change that we just made to step up our nuclear forces will step it back down if you guys back down and stop supplying uh, Ukraine with arms that they're using to fight with us. Is Medvedev uh, telling the truth here? Is that a sincere statement or is this just uh, a type of uh, brinksmanship that we're seeing? Well, I think it is a kind of brinksmanship and there's so little trust now between all parties in this that this question of is it an honest statement is impossible to discern. But I think what really matters is 
also you have President Xi on his way to Moscow. And what's become apparent is that Xi and China opposed the use of nuclear weapons. They were very clear the moment President Putin made the threat of nuclear weapons within like an hour, the Chinese came out and said, truce, constructive negotiations, like we don't want to go there. And we interpreted that in the West to mean that the alignment between the two countries had broken down, which was not correct. They are still very much aligned. There's just a line in the sand. And the Chinese clearly are aligning very closely with the Russians on some fundamental aspects of all this. One of them is now this question about what happened to Nord Stream and who, who blew it up. And the UN has just declined to get into that issue, which is just going to enrage the Russians and the Chinese even more. But I think what, what really matters here is the strategy. And I would say from the beginning, and you know, I argued this like ages ago, the Russian strategy is a kind of go ahead and hit me. It's a, it's a kind of when a, you get taunted by a bully to take a swing. And so as we in the West help Ukraine, it provides the rationale for Putin to escalate to nuclear. So what they're basically saying is, if you don't back away, you'll be directly involved and the cost to you will rise, as I was saying. And frankly, in the, in the US, we're in an election cycle now. So when Biden goes to Ukraine, what he's really doing is, you know, canvassing for votes domestically in the U.S. It's not really about, you know, foreign policy, where the fundamental question is, what would be required to bring this to an end, even if it's just incredibly unpalatable? And right now, the position the West is taking is any cost is acceptable. Although that isn't really the position of American politicians, you know, when you ask, they on both sides are fairly aligned that they don't want to be spending a ton of money on this forever. But what the Russians are doing are now is saying that's nothing compared to what you're going to have to spend now that we are arming our submarines and our ships with live nuclear weapons, which again, the Norwegian intelligence services have confirmed so this is basically an escalation strategy that's designed to get the West to give up and to allow Russia to keep pieces of Ukraine that it otherwise wouldn't be militarily able to retain. Pippa, what you said about China concerns me the most because although I don't yet fully understand where China really stands on this, what their motives are, and so forth, one thing I do know from talking to all the military people I know is that the U.S. doesn't have the uh, military superiority over both Russia and China that it used to. A lot of my friends in the military tell me they're concerned that the U.S. might not be able to win a war against either one of Russia or China, if it ever came down to that. Well, hang on. If we're going to see an alliance form where it's Russia and China working together against the United States in World War III, uh, wait a minute. Can we even fathomably win that? So I've talked about this like the last two years that what we're really seeing here is 
Russia and China coming together creates a world where the U.S. has to think about two different fronts, and we're not really set up for that. So it's a powerful combination. But let's talk about the word war, because it brings different imagery to mind for different people. And you, you know, you, you use the phrase that I've used. And I wrote a paper back in, I think it was October 2021, saying, you know, we're coming into a war environment. This is a kind of World War III. But I was very clear that this is not like World War One and World War Two, where, you know, you're talking about, you know, kind of ground wars. We see that in Ukraine, right? But what I see now is it's expanding, but not in that way. So I've argued that the fight is happening in space with satellites, with blowing up satellites and creating debris fields. It's happening with the cutting of internet cables, and it's happening in the realm of spying and spy games. We're seeing a lot of spies being arrested in different places and found underground in different parts of Western Europe. And now I've written a piece on Substack called Rumblings, um, just in the last day or two, where I've tried to outline the other ways in which this war is occurring. And it's happening in places that most people have never heard of. It's literally Transnistria and uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Artsakh and Serbia places like Moldova, um, but also in places like Greenland and Norway and parts of Denmark. And what am I meaning here? It's that we're seeing evidence of things like saboteurs, spying, creating uh, situations like we just saw the Koran burning in um, Sweden that's become uh, an issue that kind of caused as a public you know, a big public problem. Um, this kind of stuff is happening all over the place. and But it's happening in places that our news feeds are not set to watch, right? Because like people are like, where the heck is Transnistria? And I'm like, well, you know, it's the border of Moldova and Moldova's government has just collapsed. And as it collapsed, the leader of the government basically said, this is a, this is a Russian coup. So there are all these places where this war is already in motion, but because it doesn't reach the threshold for media attention, and because none of our algorithms are set to track what's happening in these locations that most people have never heard of, we kind of miss it. But I suspect we'll wake up one morning and realize this thing kind of metastasized beyond Ukraine very quickly but not because tanks rolled across a border, but because the war started to be conducted in what they call this gray zone, this sub-threshold kind of, you know, a new form of warfare where anything goes, which is definitely the military doctrine that both Russia and China have in place, but which the U.S. and the NATO are still kind of trying to deal with. What the heck does that mean? You know, and it, it means a world where you can weaponize anything. You can weaponize food prices. You can weaponize social events. And uh, again, I've written a little bit about the Chinese balloons. On one level, it's a TikTok event. And what it does is it creates an atmosphere where the public begin to question their own government. 
is that warfare? Yeah, that's a kind of warfare too. So we have to really stretch our imagination around what is the definition of war and this World War III, because if you're expecting it to look like World War II, I think that's not what's going to happen. And if you are not paying attention to what I call this invisible war, then you're going to miss it until it's much further advanced. And then you're going to be like, wait, what? What happened? So again, I've written about the invisible war on my um, Substack column for everybody. And listeners, that's at Dr. Pippa M, D-R-P-I-P-P-A-M dot Substack dot com. You'll also find a link to it in your research roundup email. Pippa, we've got to get you back on for a full length feature interview, but thanks so much for giving us this uh, quick update and we'll get you back soon to uh, go into this in more detail. Great. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on short notice, Pippa. Our producers are already working on getting you scheduled back in the next few weeks for a full-length feature interview. Nick Galarnik joins us here to talk some charts. Listeners, you'll find the download link for the post-game chart deck in your research roundup email. If you don't have a research roundup email, that means you have not yet registered at macrovoices.com. Just go to our homepage, macrovoices.com, and click on the red button over Julian's picture that says looking for the downloads. All right, Nick, let's get to these charts. On uh, page two, uh, we added a, a new chart on the SPX, uh, just uh, showing all of these support resistance levels. So uh, going into that uh, March OPEX, what levels are you watching? Yeah, so uh, listeners, looking at the green box on the screen right here, this denotes the expected range based on the option pricing for the March 17th option expiration. So as you can see here, current spot is 39.91 roughly, so around that 4,000 level, which is a very key level. The upside for the March 17th OPEX is to 41.46, and the downside is to 38.36 approximately. So looking beyond that, we have support levels at 3,800, 3,700, and 3,500, which are previous support levels. And above that, we have resistance somewhere around 4,000, which we're, we're at right now. So again, very key area right here, make or break. Above that, we have 41.20, and then 43. 25, which were the highs back from August of last year. Now, looking at these levels, you know, it's very important to analyze because if we break down from the 4,000 area, then obviously we have 3,800 in sight. And if we break above it, then 4,120 is in sight again. Uh, but Eric, based upon these levels, what are your thoughts here? It took a while to get through resistance at the 200-day moving average, which is where a lot of bear market rallies tend to fail. So now the big question is whether this is a bear market rally that was meant to fail at the 200-day, and it's going to go back down, and uh, we're going to see a close below the 200-day, or it could be that this is just a very common pattern we see in technical analysis, where it took a while to get through that 200-day. We're going to now take what was a very important resistance level, go down and test it as support before seeing that support level hold and the market moves higher into a new leg, perhaps up to 4,300, which would be the 61.8% Fib retrace. I don't really have a strong uh, opinion on which way it goes, but the question in my mind is whether or not we see a daily close below 39.48, which is where the 200-day moving average is right now. That would be probably the best indication if we do see a, a number below that on a closing print that... Uh, uh, this was a false breakout, and maybe we are headed considerably lower. We'll see what happens, though. 
So, Eric, on uh, page three, where I have that chart of the S&P 500, what I did was I drew on the ascending trend line and, and that 50-day moving average on there. I know you watched that 200-day moving average. It's right in the zone as well. And this is a, actually a very typical and key pullback. Uh, now, obviously, many people are getting nervous and bearish about uh, this breakdown. But typically, once you have a, a trend of higher highs and higher lows going, the first assumption has to be that the support level offers at least a reaction. And so reflexively, a rally back to 4,100 or higher is a, is a typical reaction. What we'll be watching is whether or not this market cycle is done. If the support level holds here and we get a north of 4,100, we could certainly still take a stab at the 4,300 highs where uh, the August high was. And it would certainly allow the market going into the middle of March to stay in this prevailing trend that's been so dominant since, um, since October. The big question, of course, is when will we inevitably have a sell cycle and is it happening now? In my mind, the beautiful thing about this 4,000 level is, is that it's a beautiful, very clean round number pivot. And it's really simple. If the bulls can sustainably keep it north of 4,000, uh, then you have to respect that the trend that's been in place uh, of higher highs, higher lows, and the market crawling higher will remain dominant. And that's uh, certainly what to keep an eye on. All right. So on page four, uh, Nick, we have that QQQ. And what option levels are we looking at going into that uh, March OPEX? So listeners, in the same way that we looked at the green box for the SPX chart, which denotes the expected range of movement based on the option pricing for the March 17th OPEX, we have a spot price on Qs of around 296 right now. Expected move is about 16 points in another direction, which is about 5.4%. So the upper expected move is around 312, and the lower expected move is around 280 or so. Now the resistance above would be at 320, then 330. Uh, we're at a key level as well, 296 area or so, which has previously acted as resistance and support. And then beyond that, we have support below at 260, which is you know far below the current area, and then at 254. So looking at these levels, kind of important because again, just like the S&P, we're at a very, very key uh, inflection point here where we could break up again back to new highs, new recent highs, or we could break down again and test out those you know, those lower areas around, you know, 260 or so. Yeah, Nick, it's really interesting about the queues because obviously NASDAQ in the last uh, couple of months has really been uh, a short-term outperformer, a sector rotation out of the defensives and into these higher beta names really has been prevailing. It'll be really interesting to see if that trend continues. So moving on to page five, we have that VIX and uh, certainly we were in this trade range down in the, the high teens during uh, the market rally and really the, um, the last few days when the market broke, uh, we saw the spike in the VIX up to the wards 24 on the upper boundary. And this is really interesting to see whether or not the 4,000 level on the S&P holds with elevated levels of, uh, of VIX. Uh, at this moment, if we just see the uh, S&P bounce and the VIX fade back to 20 in my mind, then it's just nothing more than the typical kind of uh, market correction and a quick little jump in VIX that, uh, that we have seen over and over again again. Uh, what levels are you watching though, Nick? Yeah, again, so the spot right now on VIX is 21.86 roughly. So that denotes daily expected moves in the broad markets of about 1.35 to 1.4%. 
And as you said, you know, we've broken up again recently above that 20 level. Uh, if we test the 25 area and break above that, then it's, chances are we're going to see a decline in the broad markets. But if we pull back down to below 20 and test out that 18 range, it's possible to see a slow trickle higher. Given that we have some events coming up in the next few weeks, namely FOMC again with a possible rate hike again, a probable rate hike rather, it's likely we see volatility elevate into that event. So I'm kind of being a bit cautious here and a bit more risk off after the recent rally. However, you know, if you're long-term positioned, it's important to look at your portfolio in aggregate, perhaps thinking about ways to hedge, which uh, we can discuss in another time. But, but for now, again, the key levels are 20 to the downside. If we break below that, it's probably we're going to see a slow trickle to the upside in broad markets and 25 on the upside on VIX. If we break above that, as you've seen the chart previously over the past year, We've ran very, very high, very, very fast, which has also coincided with substantial declines in broad markets. Now, on page six, we have the U.S. dollar index. Uh, what are your thoughts here, Eric? We've had two daily closes in a row now over the very important technical level of 104 on the dollar index. So far, though, no acceleration in upside momentum. The jury's still out on whether the dollar moves higher from here. Uh, a close below 104 or an acceleration of momentum to the upside would be the tell for where the next leg is going to take us. Yeah, well, Eric, you know, in that post FOMC uh, minutes, uh, we certainly seen uh, uh, once again another uptick here on the dollar index, working now uh, above this 104 level and back to the highs it had from last week. Uh, this is uh, the trend that continues. Uh, the dollar was so incredibly oversold, and it was way overdue for some uh, mean reverting correction. This uh, could easily work its way to 106, 107, as we see the euro below the 107 level. We could see. 105 on the euro or lower. Uh, we can see the yen also, US dollar yen working its way higher here. And it just continues to be on the short term, a little bit of a counter trend. What is yet to be determined is whether this is a, a bigger, deeper, more meaningful rally uh, in the dollar, that one that could potentially go back to its highs. It's very premature. And certainly the price action is uh, has almost little to no momentum yet, signifying that somehow uh, a really big dollar move is underway. But one way or another, we're above that 104 level you just talked about. And 106 is a very reasonable short-term target. Now on page seven, we have the chart of gold. In the interview, gold was mentioned for geopolitical reasons. What are you thinking about gold here, Eric? Well, we're in the midst of the biggest geopolitical escalation since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And gold, which is supposedly the ideal hedge against geopolitical risk, is down on the news. Go figure. I think the message is pretty clear that the gold market is being driven by real interest rate expectations and ignoring everything else. At least that's my interpretation, considering that a hawkish outlook from the Fed on Wednesday seems to carry more weight for the gold market than Russia rearming its submarines and warships with nuclear warheads for the first time in 30 years. What happens next for the dollar index will almost certainly be the tell for what happens next in gold, obviously in the opposite direction. Yeah, Eric, you know, uh, a lot of uh, macro traders uh, uh, do talk about uh, real rates being a, a driver here. But uh, the one thing that cannot be denied is the fact that uh, gold continues to simply behave as a cross currency to the US dollar. And then we continue to see the US dollar crawling higher and gold giving it back. I mean, the, that reversal that occurred on the top of gold was literally to the day when we saw the bottom of the dollar. And uh, while certainly geo 
geopolitics uh, and the escalation of the situation may allow gold to actually demonstrate some degree of relative strength and potentially rally. At this moment, uh, all we're continue to see is that it just is behaving in a, that inverse relationship, and we're going to be watching whether that breaks on the short term. I think uh, the Fib zones around eighteen hundred to seventeen fifty are uh, realistic downside targets. When if we saw the dollar index go to that one hundred six plus level on the upside, but uh, overall uh, I remain quite bullish gold in the bigger picture. But we simply have to see when uh, and how far the sell cycle actually plays out. Moving on though to page eight, uh, Eric, I put on this chart of crude oil, and the thing that I just wanted to observe is from a price action perspective, this remains incredibly weak. Every rally that we've seen always lasts these three, four day bursts, barely ever is able to make it back to its previous highs and almost immediately is distributed back to the lows. And this this uh, distributive price action has been dominant for like seven, eight months now. And um, while at some point there's going to be a meaningful rally in crude oil, there's certainly the backdrop from it from a macro fundamental perspective. But there is simply no evidence right now that some new accumulative cycle has begun uh, with so many tests of its previous support line. Uh, at this stage, I certainly wouldn't even rule out a short-term trip to a lower low just to wash out some stop losses and uh, and to make some headlines. But overall, uh, it's one of these scenarios where oil's probably cheap. It's probably a half-decent level to own, but there's zero evidence that uh, it's imminently going to start on some sort of new bull trend and uh, sort of stuck in the gutter if there's any other way to describe it. So moving on page nine, I wanted to just put up that chart of uh, natural gas. And uh, what we have here is just an ugly sell-off. And here in early February, it looked like natural gas was even uh, basing along the 25 level, but uh, that seems uh, that has simply not held. And uh, the distribution continues. So many traders out there talking things like negative uh, levels for nat gas. Sentiment is starting to emotionally break as traders are being washed out of this trade. It'll be really interesting to see when inevitably we see a tradable low, but there is zero sign of it right now. Uh, yesterday was a little bit of a reversal off the low, but uh, certainly nothing for uh, bulls to be able to lean on yet in terms of some sort of a tradable low. Uh, finally, I wanted to just touch on those uh, the 10-year and 2-year Treasury yields on pages 10 and 11. And the key that observation is while we have seen the 10-year yield working its way now back to the, those December-January highs, slowly approaching 4%, where we continue to those see uh, the real pressure is in that two-year yield, which is uh, right back to um, those October highs near 470 and really feels like we're about to see a fresh new high as uh, the hawkishness towards the uh, Fed policy and how far they're going to go is uh, starting to be now baked into this uh, two-year yield. It'll be interesting to see whether or not those two ten spreads continue to actually become uh, more and more negative in this type of environment as we move forward. Folks, if you enjoy Patrick's chart decks, you can get them every single day of the week with a free trial of Big Picture Trading. The details are on the last pages of the slide deck or just go to bigpicturetrading.com. This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by Respect Energy, a leading European trader of renewable energy and a one-stop shop for all green energy investors. 
Patrick, tell them what they can expect to find in this week's Research Roundup. So in this research roundup, you're going to find the transcript for today's interview, as well as a link to this chart book we just discussed here in the post game, as well as a number of links to articles that we found really interesting. So you're going to find this and so much more in this week's research roundup. Well, that does it for this week's episode. We appreciate all the feedback and support we get from our listeners and are always looking for suggestions on how we can make this program even better. For those of our listeners that write or blog about the markets and would like to share that content with our listeners, send us an email at Research Roundup at macrovoices.com, and we will consider it for our weekly distributions. If you have not already, follow our main Twitter account at macrovoices for all the most recent updates and releases. You can also follow Eric on Twitter at Eric S. Townsend, that is Eric spelled with a K, and follow Patrick at Patrick Serezna. On behalf of Eric Townsend, Patrick Serezna, and myself, thanks for listening, and see you all next week. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com, the Internet's premier source of online education for traders. Please visit BigPictureTrading.com for more information. Please register your free account at MacroVoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free listener discussion forums and research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com and we'll answer your questions on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com and by funding from Fourth Turning Capital Management, LLC. For more information, visit MacroVoices.com. <laughs>